I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we start off with the weekend review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or main review, and then finish up with film faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, the main event will be a main review of Aaron Sorkin's ensemble drama, The Trial of the Chicago 7. And Film Phase will feature an Aftershock episode of Our Favorite Years in Film. We'll be counting down... In all through the history of film, what years are our favorites? So that'll be interesting. Let's start off first with the Weekend Review. Shanna, as I understand, you got to check out a new show on Netflix since our last episode. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, what better way to celebrate being able to watch TV again? after a concussion, then watch the Netflix Ratchet. The IMDb plot description is, In 1947, Mildred Ratchet begins working as a nurse at a leading psychiatric hospital, but beneath her stylish exterior lurks a growing darkness. I love this show. The cinematography was amazing. It was very strong colors, very stimulating palette happening the 50s as i said in a previous episode i mean this is coming close to the 50s even though it says 1947 we're kind of getting to the 50s color and design wise you've got this really interesting blue that you don't really see that much uh anymore Hmm. it's this blue and green that's really particular to that time and there's just a lot of rich texture happening in this show. So the set design, the costuming, the color palette, the cinematography, I think are the best parts of this, sh- of this show, as well as the performance by Sarah Paulson. We've got Finn Wittrock. And what did we see him in the other day? Who? I, I'm not familiar with him. Oh, we saw Finn Wittrock in Taken. Not oh, Steven really? Spielberg. Yeah. The Spielberg-produced uh, yes. miniseries? Yeah. He's in there. Really? And then we've got Cynthia Nixon, Judy Davis, and uh, who else was it? It was the Arquette that did Searching for Deborah Winger. Oh, uh, let's see. That <clears throat> Roseanne Arquette? Who that must be it. Also in Pulp Fiction. In Pulp Fiction, she's um, in the drug house. Oh, okay. Uh, Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, she's in two episodes, and that was that was totally worth sitting through any uncomfortableness that might have occurred. Uh, this is a very gory, very uncomfortable show. So if you're used to seeing, you know, frontal lobotomies and other such crazy deaths, then you'll be fine. But if it's not your thing, then this show isn't for you. Sometimes I think it's going to go one way and it goes another way. But I really liked the show. I liked Ratchet. Uh, I liked Nurse Ratchet's character. I liked those that became her her team 
for lack of a better word, and I thought that there were interesting elements to this show. How was the writing? I very much like the story. Hmm. I asked because what you name checked as the strengths of the show were really more visual and it suggests to me that maybe the script the writing of the the series isn't as strong as how it looks you know it was a little odd the first and second episode but then as things kept going i really enjoyed it i thought they were doing really weird things uh you know imdb describes it as this like this famous successful medical center, but it's it's really fucked up, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's got people coming in there that are trying to get help with whatever they're dealing with. And they're using really crazy techniques like hydrotherapy, which is, to me in my mind, a calming thing at the spa. But they take it to the extreme where they're kind of boiling a body and then freezing it so it's it's really interesting and then one talent I forgot to mention my favorite part of this show actually is Sophie Okonedo I don't know if I'm saying that completely Mm -hmm. accurately but she plays Charlotte Wells and she has multiple personality like the character in Split Mm. like the character in Split yeah like what is that called? Is it called multiple personality disorder? Yes, except he had a super-powered uh, personality. Okay, so, like, Sophie wasn't super-powered, but I thought her performance was super-powered. Okay. And I would have appreciated it if she got nominated for that performance. Because she had some really, really strong screen presence. Okay. So that is Ratchet on Netflix. We saw a few things, a little bit of catching up on our end and a little bit of keeping up on our end. The catching up, let's start with the miniseries that came out in March this year called Mrs. America. Now, this is a, oh, what was it, a 10-part series? Maybe a little bit less, maybe an eight-part series that focused on the the principal players in the second wave of feminism that occurred in the 70s. Uh, this series is primarily spearheaded, it seems like, by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who a lot of people may know from... Uh, let's see here. They did Captain Marvel and a couple of things. I want to say it's a funny story or something like that a little while ago. They did a couple of movies I'm forgetting right now. Uh, Captain Marvel is the thing that made them really well known. It, the series stars Kate Blanchett, Sarah Paulson, just like in Ratchet, as a matter of fact, Elizabeth Banks, Rose Byrne, Uzo Aduba, uh, Ari Grainer, Melanie Linsky, Margot Martindale, John Slattery, Jean Triplehorn, Tracy Ullman, and Lilith kind of goes on from there. But those are the, the primary participants. Shannon, what did you think of this miniseries? 
I thought this was a great way to show the women's liberation movement. I thought it was a great way to educate us on what the ERA is, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, and how long a fight it has been to get the ERA passed across the country. It was interesting seeing two sides of feminism and, and a little bit of in between, too. And anti-feminism. And anti-feminism. They were, you know, they were touching on who gets to be included in the feminist movement and who doesn't and taking it further with, well, everybody gets to be involved who believes in feminism, which is equality for both sexes. I thought the performances were wonderful. I liked seeing opposite sides of the spectrum. I like that we moved into this direction of here's a woman's conference and here's what it would look like, you know, if women from different walks of life came together and you kind of had these different rooms representing women. Mm-hmm. I loved the performances. I thought Rose Byrne doesn't get enough credit for her acting. Mm. She was Gloria Steinem, and she was Gloria Steinem, you know? Mm. Like, it looked like I was looking right at her. It was Mm. amazing. Kate Blanchett was Phyllis Schafly, and that was pretty interesting. Well, yeah, it's important to note Phyllis Schafly was one of the primary movers of the opposition towards the Mm -hmm. ERA. Well, it was fascinating to see that Mm -hmm. rather than just completely dislike it. It was fascinating to see how it was evolving Mm -hmm. uh, into something a little messy, Mm -hmm. something a little beyond what she had originally said to her her friends and people. You're talking about her movement. Yeah. Yeah, her opposition. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Margot Martindale was Bella Abzug, and I didn't know about her, but through this, I got to learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And Tracy Ullman was Bre- Bre- Betty Friedan, and that was pretty fun seeing, you know, Betty talk about the feminine mystique all the time and how she's kind of this this foundation of that next feminist movement. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great show. I wish there was another season because I know that we're focusing on a very particular time where there was a lot of movement happening Mm -hmm. in both directions. But I want to see what happens after. Like, how do we interpret that? How do we look back on that? Mm. Yeah, I will... Only add that the cast is remarkable. The principal actresses are absolutely remarkable. I think that Kate Blanchett, Rose Byrne, Margot Martindale, and Tracy Ullman are mm-hmm. fantastic in it. I think that they're underrated. I know that basically Margot and Kate were nominated for awards. And it seems Uzo Aduba was the only one to win an acting award for this. And she this. played Shirley Chisholm. Yes, yeah. Shirley Chisholm, who was one of the first female presidential candidates. Is that right? I think she's the second female presidential candidate, but the first black. Yes, yes. So, and by the way, the show has nine episodes, to, to be very exact about that. 
And while it was very interesting to learn about Shirley Chisholm, someone who I never really hear anything about, I didn't think that necessarily that character and that performance was among the first few, I would say, are the strongest of the series. I really feel especially that Tracy Ullman uh, was greatly underappreciated in the Emmy season, the awards season, for her performance here in Mrs. America. She's remarkable, and unfortunately, she more often than not gets overlooked by those who um, vote in these types of awards. But she's a standout, and Rose Byrne, I agree with you, is great in it as well. It's worth noting that Sarah Paulson and Melanie Linsky also helped make up the cast under Kate Blanchett's characters following, too. Mm. And they become very important roles in that. Uh, the other only other thing I wanted to say about it was it was fascinating to actually learn about these people, to learn about their dynamics, to learn all the nuances of what they were on the same page about and what they weren't. You know, and how complex things were. It wasn't necessarily black and white per se in terms of what the goals were and what the perspectives were of people who were participants in this movement. So uh, there's a lot. There's so much that this series weaves in in nine episodes, and it's quite exceptional and remarkable in that sense. Yeah, I hope we get more shows like this. Mm. So that is Mrs. America, which I think we saw that on Hulu. Hulu. Yeah. So you can check it out there. Uh, next, we saw also on Hulu, we caught up with 2018's If Beale Street Could Talk. This is a movie that has been on our list to catch up with, obviously, uh, since late 2018. There is a rash of movies that came out in late 2018 that spoke specifically to uh racial politics racism the socialism stuff's going on with african americans in our country we saw in that same year the hate you give we saw sorry to bother you we saw black Klansmen. we saw blind spotting mm-hmm. and if bill street could talk also came out within that same four month period and it was the one that slipped through the cracks for us uh, highly regarded film. It is, I believe, from the director of Moonlight, whose name is Barry Jenkins. It stars Kiki Lane and Stephen James and Regina Kane. It is about, uh, it's basically an adaptation of a James Baldwin novel. And it is about a young woman um, having to deal with her, impreg- her pregnancy while she and her family set out to prove her childhood friend, who's also her lover, is innocent of a crime he didn't commit. So you basically have this uh, love story on either side of the glass and kind of the realities of really more her situation than his. Is that fair to say? You don't necessarily, the focus isn't so much on him as Kiki Lane's character. Yeah, you know, what the movie does really well is it's not focusing on his experience in the prison, but we, you know, the story is nonlinear. The film is nonlinear. So we actually get to hear about what he's probably experiencing through a friend visiting with him and talking about a situation where he got arrested for something and imprisoned for longer than he should have been. And what that was like. And it was it was beautifully told. It was very quiet. 
It was very sad. It was something really unique about it. What did you think of If Beale Street Could Talk? I really liked this film. All the elements that made up the film were beautiful and further enhanced that quiet, strong, yet emotional power of the film. So through the music, through the cinematography, through the lighting, through the performances, Regina King totally deserved her Oscar. Mm. It was a fantastic performance. I wish that we were reviewing this film today but you know this is one of those films that we just couldn't catch up with and i'm sad that we didn't catch it sooner yeah i agree with you about regina king i think it's a fine film i'm not sure that i think it's as good as moonlight was i'm not sure that it really kind of reached that level for me but it's a very good film and interesting film for what it does so I probably give If Beale Street Could Talk a 7 out of 10. How about you? I would probably give it an 8 out of 10. Uh, this this type of storytelling, the mood that it had, the performances really appealed to me. Mm. Next, we saw a new release, which also I think dropped on Netflix uh, a couple weeks ago. It's called Dick Johnson is Dead. It is by uh, documentarian Kirsten Johnson, who a few years ago made the much-celebrated Camera Person documentary, which was a, a collage of footage that she had shot over many years and many different projects, uh, both personal and professional. And uh, so here we have a much more personal story that is about her father, where she knows he is diagnosed with the same illnesses that her mother suffered from and passed away from, which was a form of Alzheimer's and dementia. He's starting to show signs of those things. And so she does kind of a project where she essentially kills her dad a couple times in film and it gets into a a little bit of a sociology project of of how one prepares mentally and emotionally for a loved one's death Shannon, what were your thoughts on dick johnson is dead i thought this was one of the most beautiful films dealing with aging parents dealing with what it might be like for them how scary it can be I guess when we're this young, we don't really think about what that's going to be like. We're just trying to make things work. We're just in this cog system. But this film takes that time to really focus on what it might feel like, what the previous experience, so with her mom, what that was like. I love that she takes this moment to talk about how she wishes she had happy footage of her mother. Yeah. And she didn't. She only started what seems as she started filming as she was losing her mother. Mm. So losing her mother through Alzheimer's and, and then you know, her final death, really, because how people seem to talk about Alzheimer's is you're slowly losing them, and then when they pass away, you lose them again, uh, essentially. Mm. And, 
you know, she's so tender and her father is so sweet, just as tender as she is. And I think that it just really makes you think about your parents. It really makes you miss them if they're not nearby. It makes it fun as well because all of a sudden he's dead again and, you know, he's mm. been killed in some way. Mm. And you're like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> so there's a lot of quirkiness to it, whether it's something that they're doing specifically to prepare for death or playing with the idea visually about what could heaven be you know and it's very stylistic how she mm -hmm. did it it's very pretty i want to go you know but also very low budget too very low budget right? but so beautiful and freeing too mm. uh it's some of it is shot in seattle because dad lives you know her dad is from seattle and it's just interesting seeing the shots that she has with that. A lot of it's recognizable for me because mm -hmm. I go to that area all the time. But I thought this was a beautiful film and it's probably going to make my top 12 of the year. Very interesting. I think that this is a very personal film. I think this is a very relatable film. I think this is a much more relatable film and accessible film than her previous film, Camera Person, largely because this is something that everybody can relate to on the one hand, right? Everybody can relate in some way to losing a family member or a parent and, and how difficult it is to deal with that, right? But also, it helps that Dick Johnson is such a likable, amenable, uh, funny guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like he is—he is funny, and the movie is funny too at times, and and uh, whimsical at times. Mm -hmm. I was under the impression. I want to clear this up. I was under the impression that the movie is going to be not not but nothing but nonstop. Let, let's kill my dad and maybe even having a montage of constant deaths of her dad. And it's actually like she kills him like maybe three or four different ways total in the whole movie. It's, it's not really the focus so much of the film, right? There's a lot of interviewing him and talking about things and, you know, different experiences that they're having too. And, and I feel like it's much more enjoyable than someone might expect especially with a title like dick johnson is dead so i think it's just another film that adds to the pile of really solid documentaries we've had this year that we're starting to experience and catch up with and it also proves that krista johnson is a very interesting documentarian that's tapping into some very interesting things through her experiences and mm. it'll be very interesting to see where she goes as she continues her work too uh striking out on her own as a documentarian so i recommend dick johnson is dead i would probably give that one also a seven out of ten uh, i'm giving it an eight <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm feeling really generous <laughs> you know i don't know i i think you're right this film is really enjoyable Absolutely. Know, even though it's dealing with a, a an interestingly difficult topic yeah. All right. So lastly, even more fun, we keep getting up, up in the fun factor here, Yeah, is a miniseries that we found on Netflix called High Score. Now, 
This essentially details the beginnings of video games. Uh, and it goes into a lot of detail of those first 20 years of video games. It's, it goes from the very beginnings, the earliest video games, up to the essentially, what would you say, the Super Nintendo age and the, the rise of the computer games, the popularization of computer games, mm-hmm. more or less. You know, it kind of stops with the mid-90s. It goes from Space Invaders to Doom. That's fair. That's a good that's, way to yeah, that's it. a very nice, succinct way of putting it. So, what did you think of high school? Was there anything that you appreciated about it? Any issues you had with it? Oh gosh, I really loved seeing the gaming culture that existed in America and then Asia is kind of where they bounced between, and it was just so interesting to see that there were these gaming competitions from the very beginning. I didn't know this myself, but I always had this feeling that, you know, it feels like this could be a championship. And I used to pretend when I was a kid playing, I think Timon and Pumbaa, like some sort of bug block game, Mm. you know, I was like, and I'm going to win the championship. And, you know, like as a kid, you you think, oh, I'm doing so good. I'm I'm amazing. You know, it's a nice little ego boost. And so it was nice to see that there was actually something like that that existed. Because recently I have been made aware that there are these championships with certain online gaming platforms where they bring people from different countries into one area and they could win a million dollars, you know, and... I think that gamers get a bad rap, but if you know about this part of gaming, it's it's not as bad a rap as you might as one might originally have thought. There's a lot of effort, a lot of coordination, a lot of skill that goes into something like this. I loved that they they talked a little bit about Tetris, they talked a little bit about Sega. They well actually they talked a lot about Sega. I love how they talked about Sega's strategy. I love that we got to hear about Mario and uh, block designs. And, uh, you know, we eventually got to Final Fantasy. And when they touch on the beginning of Final Fantasy, they kind of, you know, look at it to where it is right now. Mm -hmm. So every time they're mentioning something, they're kind of updating it, you know, before they end that talk about that game. So I love the format. I loved all the talking heads. Mm. I loved hearing their stories about how some of them were like, oh, well, we did this and we did that in this garage or that parking lot or whatever it is. Mm. And they're like these amazing people right now. And that was super interesting to me. Yeah, no, I did find it quite fascinating, even uh, as someone who lived through a lot of the development of of this and the popularization of video games and and computer games too what i find really appreciative about it is a like how it it focused on like the development of the high score and and how like trying to beat a high score was a big deal and and uh, I, i kind of remember that being the value of the game that's part of the replay value of a game was trying to improve your high score you know and also like it's really cool how it doesn't focus on necessarily the big names of the video game industry you get people who are like the marketer of nintendo in the united states or you get like 
uh, someone who was a game coach for Nintendo, or, you know, you get someone who was the developer of the sounds in Nintendo, you know, all these other different players of the time in the bigger picture that aren't necessarily always the head honchos, you know, and, and stuff. And also there's some unsung heroes that I you never probably even heard of that are highlighted in the series. So a lot of little things that add up to a very enjoyable, plus the visuals. The, the visuals in it are really fun and entertaining and hilarious. Yeah, the too. way they un, they unlock their storytelling yeah. is beautiful. It's like a lot of like 32-bit uh, graphics and but stuff. But more like 64-bit. <laughs> It's like smooth moving. And sure, yeah. All of that. Uh, the only other, the only issue I had with it really was that it seemed to kind of cut off, and I felt mm. like you know, but we have a whole other twenty-five years of video game development I want to hear about, and the I PlayStation, wish PlayStation, the yeah. Xbox, yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I wish there was more, but what we get is pretty good. So. High Score is the name. It mm-hmm. is available on Netflix. Are you more Nintendo or are you more Sega? So I was neither growing up, but as an adult who finally got exposed to those, principally with you uh, to an extent. Uh, ah, yes. Tell me how I've influenced you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, Sega. Really. I'm definitely a Sega girl. I got much more pumped as an eight-year-old mm. or nine-year-old when we got a Sega console yeah. and would hear the Sega. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, who's playing without me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody could contest the quality of Nintendo games, but in terms of, like, what I love, and if you just look at our collections, there's a lot less Nintendo than there are Sega games. So, But uh, really, I'm a Sony PlayStation guy. Oh, okay. No, I think it's. I think I'm more Sega, mm-hmm. you know, than Sony. Right on. All right. Well, that is the week in review. Let's move on to the main event and our review of the trial of the Chicago Seven. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy shit. You all right? It was until it's all there. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> my trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. Last summer, why did you come to the convention? To end the war. We're giving them exactly what they want, a stage and an audience. Yeah, you really think there's going to be a big audience? 
And that was from the trailer to The Trial of the Chicago 7. The plot description on IMDb is that this is the story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. This film is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, and it stars quite a large cast. That includes Eddie Redmayne, Alex Sharp, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, John Carroll Lynch... Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ben Shankman, Frank Langella, and one Michael Keaton, just to name a few. So, when we do a review of a film, what we like to do is focus first on the good, what we liked about a movie, what worked for us, what clicked before moving on to the bad. Always good to focus on the good before the bad. Uh, what didn't work for us? What flaws were there? Was the film crap because of a series of issues? Then we weigh the good versus the bad, if one outweighed the other, before moving on to spoilers and final thoughts. So, Shanna, we have seen several movies scripted by Aaron Sorkin. We even went and saw Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, Molly's Game, with Jessica Chastain a few years ago. How did the trial of the Chicago 7 measure up to the previous work of his that you are familiar with? I'm definitely more of a Molly's Game kind of girl Mm. after watching this one. I mean, look, the cast was really awesome. The performances were good. There certainly seemed to be some things lacking in the story to just give it a little bit more of a, a little bit more excitement. There certainly seemed to be some things missing to add more excitement to the story uh, or tension. Hmm. Uh, it definitely felt like more of a neutral ride for me. Hmm. And although it had humor and it was funny and it was smart and you had to pay attention at times. At times, I thought it was trying to be a lawyer version of In the Loop, hmm. uh, you know, with that quick, witty comeback, uh, not as, like, degrading. Not but, as vulgar, <laughs> Not for as sure. vulgar, yeah. but, uh, you know, something along those lines. I, I was much more interested in the lawyer dialogue that was happening in A Time to Kill. Which is a movie we happened to rewatch. We happened recently. to rewatch recently, yeah. Um, so it's it's just interesting. I felt like there was stuff missing. Really? Um, I liked its non-linear storytelling. Hmm. You know, we were kind of following the trial. That's the linear thing that's happening, and then everything else about it is non-linear. In the sense that it goes back and shows moments from that led them to the trial. Yeah, but it's it it's a little tricky to follow, isn't it? I didn't find that to be the case. Ah, it's a little tricky for people suffering from a concussion to follow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Which I know is not the majority of, you know, the world. The average viewer, right? Yeah. Right. Anything else you thought was good about this film? I like the actors. I thought that they picked their cast pretty well. Mm-hmm. How about you? What did you like about this film? I'm oh. going to throw it back to you. Oh, boy, you seem very <laughs> reserved. Okay, so when it comes to Aaron Sorkin, I mean, this is just a recap. This is a guy who wrote A Few Good Men, The American President, oh. 
Social Network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, Molly's Game, as well as this film. You know, I'm not as big a fan of Steve Jobs, and I don't really remember A Few Good Men, but, like, American President's one of my favorite rom-coms. Moneyball is super smart, and I think The Social Network's one of the greatest scripts of the past 10 years. So this guy is very smart, and, of course, I've always loved The West Wing, which he wrote uh, 22 episodes of. Of course, he, he or sorry, 155 episodes of, and uh, he created that series, right? Love that series. Very smart series. Uh, so, of course, Aaron Sorkin is a gifted and brilliant writer, and he's a brilliant writer of dialogue. I like Molly's Game. I really like Molly's Game a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think Jessica Chastain's a big reason why I like Molly's Game a lot, mm-hmm. uh, the costuming and so many other things. I think The Trial of the Chicago 7 is a better film. Oh, okay. It's not without its flaws. I have a major one major issue with the film that we'll get to in spoilers. But do you like it more than Molly's Game? I do. Oh, okay. I do. I thought this was hilarious. I thought it was very... Uh, much like Mrs. America, it was very informative of something mm. that I never even heard of before. Mm-hmm. I went into this thing kind of cold, not really knowing who was on trial. Like, you know, we've seen like the Central Park Five and other things. So I just assumed with this today's climate that this was a movie about uh, a group of black African-Americans who were uh, wrongfully convicted of something and on trial. That's not at all what it is, <laughs> right? Well, that's let's get said. a little more clarification there. You're right. There is there is someone who is a part of the Black Panther Party who is wrongfully accused and is thrown into the mix, which is why sometimes some people refer to the Chicago 8. And that, that story is uh, his story. Bobby Seale is very interesting, very frustrating, hair-pulling and maddening to witness. This trial is often maddening and and hair pulling and absolutely you, you just it defies logic it defies everything that you believe a court is supposed to be about right about facts about logic about the law about the rules of what what allows us to be served by those who serve the law and all that sort of stuff yeah it's also often very funny very funny, very witty script, very which surprised me. It is kind of a breeze. It's not a heavy-handed. I don't think it's a heavy-handed film, really. I don't think it's a weighty film, in the sense that it, you know, uh, something like maybe if Beale Street could talk could be on uh, on the other end of the spectrum, right? So I found it very enjoyable, and I think that this is one of the best films of the year. I put it up there with First Cow. I put it up there with Never, Sometimes, Always, rare, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And Forever. Um, right. I'm just kidding. Uh, the cast is a big part of it, too. I think in particular, Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen and Mark Rylance give exceptional performances. They are great. Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman, who was a famous 
political leader, protest leader, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think they they call them the yippies, not the hippies, but right. the yippies. And I'm not. Uh, I've heard of the yippies many okay. times. I'm not as familiar with them. So it's an education learning about Abby Hoffman through this and and his personality and stuff. So I think there's a lot to appreciate and enjoy about the trial of the Chicago Seven. Do you want to get into what you didn't like about this film? I'm really curious to hear about what you didn't like about the film. So why don't you start us off with that for a change? Okay. Because we haven't talked about this yet, and I was super curious and kind of probing you last night, and you were like, no, no, we'll talk about it right now. So right <laughs> right now is here. So tell me what you didn't like about this film. Okay, the, the primary issue with the film, the biggest issue with this film, is the last three minutes of the film. Mm. I don't want to go into details mm-hmm. of what it is here, but it is incongruent with the rest of the tone, let's say, of the film. And it feels a little too Hollywood ending. Uh-huh. Now, what I what we didn't do that we wanted to do that we forgot to do was actually research the events of this trial and and see i trust that most of this script is taken from court documents of the transcripts and stuff right what was actually said in court and what happened but i am very curious about the end because it felt false it didn't feel right uh to me so, yeah, it felt like a, a feel-good, happy Hollywood ending. And I, I don't want to say anything more than that, but that's, that's basically the gist of my issue, with the, my big issue with the film. Everything was going so well, and then this last three minutes happened, and uh, it Did it, it kinda... feel like a 90s Hollywood ending? You could say that. It felt very particular. Mm-hmm. You could say that. It's it's very surprising. And uh, coming from Aaron Sorkin, he doesn't usually... I don't think he usually comes up with this kind of stuff. Sometimes he's trying to be inspiring, you know, like Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip or whatever it was called was, was very much like that. West Wayne was very hopeful and very inspiring. But it was never so. It, it, it never struck this kind of tone that felt so artificial. Uh, so that's my primary issue. I think it's fair to say that you could lob criticisms towards. Um, gosh, who are they? There's two participants in the Chicago Seven. I think it's Danny Flaherty's John Freund's and Noah Robbins Lee Weiner, who aren't really much of characters in the film. And we get an explanation as to like where what their roles are in this whole thing uh, later at halfway through the film. I didn't really get a sense of who they were and how they what the what, what their role was and how they got caught up in all this in the first place. But aside from that, I don't have really any issues with the film. You? Uh, it could be the concussion speaking, but I didn't have problems with the film. Here and there, I needed more information. Here and there, I wish there was more emotion with certain parts of the film. Hmm. The way that they were showing and expressing emotion through certain silences or standing ups or 
determination was fine. I just felt like I needed a little something more, a little more sparkle. Hmm. That's that's interesting. A little more sparkle. Hmm. Okay. It's more of a feeling thing, so it's it's really subjective. Okay. It's not objective at all, I'll admit that. Fair enough. Anything else you want to say about it? No, I think it would be great to move into spoilers, don't you? I think I, one thing I didn't mention before that I just want to mention before we do is, first of all, this movie gets to the trial very quickly. Like, you get introduced to the characters in a very brisk pace, and within 15 minutes, we're in the trial. And I thought that was really interesting and not at all what I expected. And also, I thought it was very timely because you see a lot of police brutality. And that's something that we've seen in the news a lot. During people's right to protest. Exactly. Especially During that. their freedom of speech exercising. Exactly. In fact, we see the police go so far as to prevent allowing them space to protest. Uh, and I think that it doesn't take a genius to see some relevance in that. It's as if they knew the whole George Floyd... Black yeah. Lives Matter. It's as if they knew it was going to happen this year. It's cra- that's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. I also really appreciate, and this is kind of the thesis of the entire film. At one point, a character stops a lawyer and says, "Give me a million, will you?" I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Yeah, there were some really good lines. You have a good point. Uh, but with that, would you say that the good outweighs the bad in the film? And if so, what would you rate it? Yes, absolutely. The good outweighs the bad. I'd maybe rate it a six. Oh, wow. Now that I'm thinking about it more, I'm like, maybe I needed a better score. Score? Oh, interesting. That might have been what was missing for me. And who did the score to this film? Was it anybody that we're familiar with? So our composer in this film was the same composer for Molly's Game, Ocean's 8, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I'm Looking Like the Idiot Here, Yesterday, Motherless Brooklyn, Birds of Prey, Enola Holmes. Which we still haven't seen. Yeah. And this is uh, Daniel Pemberton. Uh, I don't know. I just felt like the score was missing in this film. Maybe it was because they wanted to focus on the dialogue because the dialogue does move fairly fast. Hmm. But I just, I felt like it was missing. I was hungry for Hmm. composition. Interesting. I didn't have that experience. I think this film is, you know, it's just, I wish the ending was better. That's, that's pretty much it. I really enjoyed this film. I would give it an eight out of 10 if it weren't for the, the ending, uh, which is unfortunate. That alone makes it fall uh, from like the top three of the year to somewhere between eight and five of the year, sometime in the top five. So, that is our non-spoiler thoughts for the trial of the Chicago 7. If you have seen the film, join us for the spoiler discussion that we're about to have. Otherwise, check the show notes for the timestamp of the when Film Faves starts and uh, skip ahead to that. 
because we're about to get into spoilers for the trial of the Chicago 7 starting now. Okay, Shanna, was there anything that you wanted to speak to in particular about this film that you couldn't before? Are you going to give a rundown of what happened that's spoilery? Well, give me a place that you want to speak to, and, you know, if that's the case, we can't. Um, how terrifying protesting was, and how horrifying the treatment of Bobby Seal was. So, Bobby Seal, let's speak to that in particular. Okay. And and you can tell me if there's any issues or, or, or things that you appreciated about this. First of all, we have a judge, played by Frank Delangella, who seems a little out of step, to say the least. He can't get names right. He can't seem to especially comprehend that Bobby Seale is not being represented by the lawyer who is representing the others that are on trial, that Bobby Seale has his own lawyer who was uh, caught up in some sort of a, a medical appointment. He wasn't there. He was there. hospitalized, I suppose. Was it? Yeah. I think he had some sort of a, a thing going on. But at any rate, he wasn't he wasn't available for the trial. And so it went from him waiting for his lawyer to arrive to having to eventually represent himself. But the thing is, the judge kept shutting him down anytime he tried to speak for himself. Anytime a witness was speaking to him, uh, speaking to his situation in particular, and Bobby tried objecting or what have you. He would always be shut down, told to sit down, and was horribly treated, right? And the thing is, it's not like someone can just stand up and be like, hey, you can't treat him like that, because... Well, first of all, it's the judge, and he represents the court, and as lawyers, you're supposed to respect the court, but also, at the same time, they kind of get that this guy's a little difficult, and so, like, they don't want to be held in contempt or anything either, and it just escalates and escalates to the point where, after a certain point, understandably, as the audience is, Bobby Seale is fed up, and he is taken out of the room at one point and how does the judge phrase it he Um, phrases it much like how trump phrased something at a rally once where he's saying take him back and treat him how he should be treated with very racist undertones it is not pretty and he gets brought back into the court shackled and gagged and this is, again, in late 60s, uh, the beginning of the 70s, maybe. So does not look good. So what is it that you wanted to say about that? You know, at first, I was rather angry that we weren't getting enough of Bobby Seale's story. We, at this point, you know, just before Bobby Seale got gagged, we had seen a lot of all the other characters situations and activities that led up to why they're in court Mm -hmm. but we were seeing nothing about bobby seal all we knew that he was coming to chicago to give a speech and that um the people in his life were concerned about him going that's all we knew and that he was fighting for representation fighting for what you should fight for in a court 
and that he was getting shut down and verbally gagged, you know, and then it, it got to the point where it was this physical horrific event. So I got angry not only with what he was dealing with, but from a story perspective, because I was like, where the hell is his story? Why aren't we getting more information about him? And after a while, I calmed down because I realized what they were trying to show was he shouldn't have been there in the first place. We're not even going to show you what led to it. We're not even going to talk about what led to him being there because you know why he's there. It's systemic racism and it's been further it's been further exercised within that court of law a place that's supposed to be neutral and i i thought that that was an interesting choice after getting angry about it um, and realizing what they were trying to do. That's a really good point. I think it's important to clarify that we do learn that Bobby Seale was only in Chicago for four hours before he, uh, and he was on his way to leaving Chicago when he was detained. And he absolutely had no relationship to any of the other defendants. He in no way had any communication with any of the other defendants, unless I'm missing something, he in no way was connected to the events that the other defendants were connected to that led to their arrests. So I think your description of it and your explanation to why we get what we get about his story is absolutely spot on. I, that, that's a very good point. Well, something that I forgot to mention was the person, who, his friend that was supporting him, that was trying to help him on the sides, he had been the victim of police brutality killing. Rennie Davis. Yeah. And so we also, that kind of just brushed by. We didn't focus on any of it. We only saw pictures that were uh, what seemed to be from a newspaper or a file of some kind. And it, it further goes to illustrate the frustrating bullshittery of it all, that we don't actually get this in our face. We're too busy focusing on the seven white guys, you know. So I thought that that was an interesting move. Do you think there's a strength or a weakness of the film? I think if you take the time to think about it, it can be a strength. But if you're simply mad about it, like I was in the beginning, it might not be good for the viewer. But I think ultimately it's a good decision. Anything else that you wanted to speak to? I liked seeing so much footage of protesting and the attempt to protest. It was horrifying seeing the woman um, getting pulled down and almost raped by mm. three spoiled, white guys. entitled white men. Yeah, And she was about to be raped among many police officers and many other people mm -hmm. and that was horrifying so i'm glad that they talked about the horror of protesting um and, and kind of everything in between too so to be specific on my end the last three minutes we have essentially the verdict about to be given by the judge mm-hmm for some reason, the jury doesn't factor in at this point. I'm not sure why. But he allows one representative to speak for the group before the verdict is given. And he chooses The decision that. is given, right? Yeah. And yes, he chose to have Eddie Redmayne's character mm -hmm. uh, speak on behalf of the group. And that, that guy, by the way, is Tom Hayden. 
And he gives Tom very specific guidelines to follow yes. in his speech. Yeah. And Tom repeats them. He thinks about them for a second. And then he proceeds to read a list of thousands of officers who served the military and died in Vietnam. Which was the entire point of what they're protesting. He, they didn't want their people to die over there. And, and there's so many people that have died since they've started trial. And that's the names that they're reading. And it became this rousing moment where everybody gets up and cheers while, they, while he's reading the names. And everybody's putting their fists in the air and showing solidarity. And the judges, meanwhile, telling Colin crying out for order and banning the gavel. And the I'm music rises. I'm surprised the gavel didn't break. <laughs> yeah. And the music rises. And it just felt like this rousing Hollywood happy ending for guys who went to prison, <laughs> by the way. As I yeah, they all it, right? ended up in prison for five years or something. I think so, yeah. And it just felt a little disappointing. And it felt like, gosh, you know, a lesser movie would do this. This is, a, this is not, this movie's better than this. And then you get the text that details what happened and what happened to each character, you know, the rest of their life or where they are now, what have you, and and such. And that's that's interesting. But that that note of the rising, the swelling music and the audience swelling and cheering and this whole thing, like I don't know if that actually happened, but either way, the execution just doesn't work with the rest of the movie, and that to me was the film's major misstep i hear what you're saying i i think that the rising music was ill-placed like that should have been where the music would be subtle so that you could focus on the names Mm. in my opinion Mm. um and instead the music should have been tense terrifying horrifying edge on your seat when they were trying to break through to that restaurant that they eventually got to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. To spill their own blood. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you completely. Yeah, so that that's pretty much my only thoughts on the the film at this point in, in spoilers, but I, I still highly recommend the film. I think it's one of the best films that we've seen. Granted, it's been a fraught year for movies. Uh, it's been very difficult year for movies i think what we have been seeing though mostly has been really interesting really unique Mm. and worthwhile watching Mm. mostly Mm. yeah so i'm curious what do you think about the trial of the chicago seven if you have seen the film feel free to email us with your thoughts at the gibson review at gmail.com now, Shanna, it's time for film faves. Film faves, first, for those who are new, is a segment that was inspired by a part of the Gibson Review blog wherein I would count down my 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. Uh, we were going backwards through time, and we were having these Aftershock episodes, uh, segments, uh, after we went backwards through time, relating and wrapping up that, we've had favorite discoveries of our journey backwards through time that we've done for the past three years. Favorite actors and actresses, favorite directors. 
Well, what I intended to do was, after Favorite Discoveries, to talk about those years that we went through and pick out, cherry pick out, what our favorite years in all the history of cinema were. Before we moved on to actors and actresses and directors and lead up to our favorite movies of all time. So we're going to do that today. Ah, you had a format misstep. I Got it. did. Probably okay. not a big deal to anybody but me, but whatever. Well, it's been a hard year for you. <laughs> for all <laughs> of us. Trying to set up the schedule and re- I don't know oh, how man. much tippics you've used. I mean, uh, wide out in this country, I but... I don't know why you just don't start a new page. Oh, because you, I've started several new pages. Well, over the somehow past six it just months. seems like you insist you know? upon using the same page. Because now I have whiteout. <laughs> At any rate, yes, it has been a challenge. It's been a challenge, especially the past month, as movies continue to get moved. I and think you can be absolved of your sins. Thank you. I appreciate it. At any rate, that's what we're going to do. We're going to count down our favorite years in film. So, how did we do that? How did we go about doing that? What does this mean? So, let me speak to my process as an example, and maybe, Shanna, you can talk about your experience with this. For me, it was a matter of, okay, going through every single list, going through backwards through time. First of all, any list that we did of decades, what years came up the most in those decade lists? Surely, if a year came up the most, it must have been one of my favorites of that decade, right? Then, also going through the year by years, which pretty much existed from 2019 uh, backwards all the way to 1980. What years had the most movies that I absolutely love, that I can't live without, whatever it was, on my list? Okay, then boil it down. And rearrange and try to figure out, okay, did I just love this year, more than this year? But also, a big thing, Shanna, I really tried to avoid, and it was hard, honestly, was recency bias. Because, here's the thing about recency bias. The years that you live and are cognizant and are watching movies and are active in watching movies are the years that you will have seen more films than the years that you weren't alive for, Right? The years when we go back through time, you may have only seen a dozen, maybe two dozen movies from a particular year if you're lucky. And so uh, I really tried to make sure I didn't just have recent years in my list. I really tried to have as many older years as possible. Before I continue that thought process, I want to ask you, what was the process like for you? I just went with which films were my absolute favorite from those years. So got my favorite years where I was like, hey, there's a bunch of films that I love that was in this particular year. And then I wasn't that hard on myself if it was a a recent year. It didn't matter because quite frankly, recently there have been many films about women and their experiences and their hopes, dreams, and fantasies. So I didn't have a problem with putting recent years up close. Films that are also dealing, films in years that are also dealing with the black experience that we've never seen before, you know? So I, I'm totally fine doing the whole recent thing. I mean, you might see that number four is from the 80s and then 
maybe the top three are from the 2000s, you know? Maybe. <laughs> but You're maybe, really good at being vague. <laughs> you know, maybe there's a 40s in there. Maybe there's a 50s in there. Maybe well, there oh, isn't. Okay, okay. okay. You so know? you're getting to my next question. But first, before okay. I get to that, uh, it seems like you really put a weight on, okay, what years really started telling stories of women really well and started um, giving stories of other people's experiences really well. And that, that kind of weighted your list a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I found, you know, I found a year that I liked, listed the movies I loved and started seeing a pattern of why that year really appealed to me. Very cool. Very interesting. Very interesting. So my question that my, continuing my previous thought process was, was were there particular decades that dominated your list? Yeah, it looks like 80s, 90s and the late, you know the 2010s are mm. what dominate my list for me it is the i think the past 10 years you know you got four entries from the past 10 years and uh the 80s as well you know that makes up eight spots in my list and then the other four are from other decades but there is one mm. decade from my life that is not included, that did not make my list. Mm. That surprised me. It is the 90s. How so, could the 90s not feature on your list? Well, let's get into our list and okay. find out, shall we? Why don't you start us off with your 12th favorite year in all of cinema history? My number 12 is one of those where the year had three of my favorite films and it, it needed to be featured because in the beginning I was trying to go like a year from each decade, but then I realized, Oh, this isn't going to work out for me. <laughs> so it's 1955. And in that year we have rebel without a cause. So a really great teenage experience. Mm -hmm. We have night of the hunter, just, Absolutely stunning cinematography, camera movement. The only film by that director whose name is escaping me yet again. But I Always. see it's on your your lips. Charles Lawton. Thank you. And then, of course, one of my absolute favorite Disney films. One of the only Disney films about uh, pre-marriage pregnancy. Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Okay. Um, you know, Lady and the Tramp is just such a wonderful film and what a great female character and what a silly, fun male character. But then the men that support Lady too, like Trusty and Jacques, it's, it's such a great film. So really that's, that's why it made my list was because of those three films. I couldn't not have it there. Very cool. I also started back in the day. <laughs> And number 12 this year just edged out another year, which in effect edged out an entire decade. But on the other hand, this decade wasn't represented either. And the year in question is 1968. Now, Shanna... You may be wondering, what, the, what came out in 1968? Of course, this was a really great year in music, a really great year in social movements and justice, and a lot of harsh stuff came out in 1968. But a lot of 
great film speaking to the times came out in 1968 we got planet of the apes and night of the living dead and monterey pop that great that was music. like the three hour documentary right that was woodstock you're thinking oh, of, okay. which came out in 1970 i think okay. monterey pop was the other documentary mm, about the music right. festival before where we had the debut of Jimi hendrix publicly mm-hmm. and stuff uh and but also the producers it's the debut of mel brooks we had 2001 a space odyssey hit in 1968 and there's even the odd couple neil simon's comedy with walter Matthau. And I forget his partner in it. But uh, it's just a, a year of great films, films that spoke to the times, sp- films that pushed the genres and made us think, and films that made us laugh. And uh, so, yeah, 1968, for its quantity uh, of just those films alone, got it onto this list. My number 11, and I might look at my list later and regret this choice, but what really stood out to me about 1946 was the best years of our lives, and it's a wonderful life. Mm. And having those two films kind of bookend, you know, growing the empathy muscle for humanity and really taking a look at uh, not only our our war veterans, but also our businessmen and women. You know, there's a lot that each of those people go through. I mean, go and meet a war veteran that's a business owner too. That's an interesting. Mm-hmm. There's a new story. <laughs> Somebody get on that. You know, the best years of our lives focuses on. You know, I think it's three. Is it three? Three or four? Mm-hmm. characters that have just come back from war and they're trying to get resettled in and the women that are all trying to support them and the families that are all trying to support them and be there for them and how hard it is because you don't know what that person is dealing with not only from what they experienced over there but what with what they're experiencing here now and it's a wonderful life really focuses in on every minute of your life how you're thinking about trying to make sure that you can make enough money for your family to live Mm. but also do what you love and not end up hating it Mm. Um, and the overwhelm that can occur and how that spirals further Mm. so i really love the year for those two films i think those two films are are you know if we had a list for growing empathy for humanity that those would be on that list so uh that's that what is your number 11 my number 11 actually is from a decade that i had assumed would be my least favorite decade and ended up surprising me in this journey that we went through Mm. we did a few months ago the 1950s and 1954 ended up being one of my favorite years in film because that year, you had Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa, you had Hitchcock's Rear Window, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, the last of the original Universal Monster movies, On the Waterfront by Elia Kazan, starring Marlon Brando, you also had Japan's Sancho the Bailiff, Godzilla, and another Hitchcock film, Dial M for Murder. 
most of those films are absolute favorite films of mine of respective areas and it's probably the most concentrated or populated year in the 50s in terms of favorites of mine Uh, i absolutely love many of those films and some of those films are among the greatest films ever made so I could not deny the power of 1954, and so it made it to my 11th spot on this list. I'm so glad that the 50s featured into your list. Thanks. My number 10 is a little more recent. It's 2015, and these are just movies that I absolutely love. Uh, And they kind of deal with a couple of different things. Uh, We've got reality happening. We have fantasy. We have film being used as a tool to talk about feelings we have a look at what journalism is we and what it should be and and then we have some really great comedy and um, some really great drama with 2015 we had star wars the force awakens pixar's inside out mad max fury road something that i never thought we would see i thought mad max was finished and and then we we got furiosa uh and five i think it's five women that kind of fought back against a patriarchal society then there's spotlight woman in gold spy one of my favorite comedies ever lady in a van and sicaria so just this really interesting spread of entertainment but also reality and how to use your words to express your feelings you know what you're illustrating there is a really great year for women and Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact 2015 is my number 10 as well oh really oddly enough absolutely what you also what i would add on top of your list there is we also had creed Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which had a great female character in it, by the way, played by Rebecca Ferguson, to add to your argument. Love and Mercy and The Martian and... I love Love and Mercy. Avengers Age of Ultron. We were big proponents of Love and Mercy. We feel that that's an underrated movie that we keep bringing up. So underrated, I forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) So... Yes, I I feel similarly to you. What you had with 2015 also, what's also being illustrated is the reignite, reignition, for lack of a better term, of franchises. Yes. Star Wars, Mad Max, Rocky, you know, and the continuation of, of such things with Mission Impossible's fifth film and uh, Age of Ultron, the second avengers movie but the 12th or whatever the hell (laughs) uh, mcu film right uh so uh, then it was a really great year for pop fiction for pop cinema because you even had martian which was like really smart science sci-fi but also very like fun Mm -hmm. and accessible right and uh you also had sicario which was a very smart, very interesting crime film, you know. And, and of course, like, that brought a lot of attention to Denis Villeneuve, uh, to a lot mm-hmm. of people who maybe didn't see Prisoners or, or Enemy especially, or any of his previous films. So 2015, uh, also a favorite for me. 
My number nine shoots us back to 1991. This was also a pretty good variety of a year, kind of like how 2015 was. We had Terminator 2, Barton Fink, Mississippi Masala, Silence of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast, Thelma and Louise, Defending Your Life, JFK, Hook, and Father of the Bride. So it was a pretty interesting year. It it was a year filled with a lot of fun, something really interesting like Barton Fink, something really unique like Mississippi Masala, something terrifying like Silence of the Lambs, beautiful Beauty and the Beast where Disney was taking it up a notch with their filming, Thelma and Louise commenting on the female experience, Defending Your Life, something really quirky, like a nice interpretation of something. Uh, JFK kind of playing around with that. Hook is definitely a favorite of mine, you know, when we were kids. I still, you know, I'll see the word hook and I'll think, hook, hook, give us the hook, you know, (laughs) totally plays in my head. And then obviously Terminator 2, I mean, that is the one I saw first. I thought that was the only Terminator film. So a really wonderful, fun year. That movie is one, or that year is one of three 90s years, three years in the 90s that almost made my list because not only are there the ones that you mentioned, but also Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Mm. City Slickers, The Rocketeer, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and also some things like, some comedies like Necessary Roughness and Doc Hollywood, and and My Girl was that year. That was a very Mm. strong year. Did not make my list but uh, a, a worthy contender for sure. My ninth favorite year in film is 2008. This, of course, is famously the year of the Dark Knight oh. and, of course, Iron Man, but it was also a great year in animation. You had Wally, Kung Fu Panda, and Bolt, three major studios bringing out really solid stuff. You had... Great comedies like Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Tropic Thunder and Role Models. And even in Bruges, you also had Slumdog Millionaire and Let the Right One In. And Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. That's a really great year. I'm glad you mentioned it. That is a really great year. (laughs) And so there's a lot of weight to that year. There's a lot of greatness from that year. There's... It's a strong contender in general as one of the greatest years ever. So, yes, number nine on my list, 2008. My number eight takes us to 1987, my birth year, which turns out to be a pretty good damn year other than my birth. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We have something that I quote with you a lot broadcast news Mm. harry and the hendersons which makes me happy that i live in washington (laughs) uh there's witches of eastwick so again speaking to that female experience which was your favorite 1987 movie yes lethal weapon what a that's a you know if you look at that film it's it's quite the emotional roller coaster ride for a buddy cop movie. Yes. You know? Yes. And I, I like what they're dealing with in there. Then there's The Untouchables. I mean, the score alone is amazing. Oh, yeah, we've swoon. been listening to that a lot by swoon. Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Swoon a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the story is pretty awesome, too. Uh, then we have Cry Freedom, the movie 
about South African Steve Biku and the uh, journalist that was determined to tell Steve's story, uh, let the world know about Steve's story so that the world could actually start waking up and helping South Africa come away from apartheid. And then for fun, we had Dragnet. You know, what a weird... Okay, the actual movie is super weird, but... And hilarious. And hilarious at the yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> you know, really, really interesting, quirky, funny, stupid. My eighth favorite year in film almost was in my top three, but clearly got moved down when in consideration. It is 1989, my first year of the 80s on my list. This is the year of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, When Harry Met Sally, The Little Mermaid, Batman, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Field of Dreams, Always, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Say Anything, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Look Who's Talking in UHF. So some of those are among the best the 80s had to offer of a particular genre of a particular studio of a particular series a couple of those are somewhat underrated as well i think always is an underrated Mm -hmm. spielberg film underrated love story yes 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 I, i i i think it works so Uh, 1989 is a great year in film and it's just enough to make it to my eighth favorite spot i think that's a great pick maybe we'll hear more later Mm. my number seven is from 1996 for me this was quite the killer year we have the craft You know, that's one of those really campy movies that we're actually going to review the remake of it in in a little while. You know, going along with that, the female experience, we've got the first Wives Club. Then we've got Matilda, one of those really lovely uh, Roald Dahl female hero kind of stories. We have Mission Impossible, which now I'm craving watching the Mission Impossible TV show. What the hell? Mm, Interesting. And then, you know, we had a lot of fun with kids' films. So not only Matilda, but James and the Giant Peach, Muppet Treasure Island. It's kind of like a quirky kid year, Mm. you know. And then we have action. So not only Mission Impossible, but The Rock and Independence Day. Mm. And then, you know, we just spoke about A Time to Kill. We recently watched that again. And then one of my favorite movies of all time, Fargo. Right, as you mentioned, yeah. Oh, did I already mention Mm -hmm. that? This is the concussion people deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead and tell me about your one. My number seven brings us back to more recent years. It is 2014, which Hmm. Instagrammers just took a poll on what their favorite movie from that year was. More on that later. But for me, it was films like Edge of Tomorrow, What We Do in the Shadows, X-Men Days of Future Past, The Duke of Burgundy, Obvious Child, 
the documentary about Roger Ebert, Life Itself, one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Then you also had, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy, which is one of the most perfect MCU movies, standalone movies, practically, too. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like Indiana Jones in space. It has that sort of a vibe to it. It's, it's almost as well-constructed as the best Indiana Jones movies. But also we had Captain America Winter Soldier, the very intriguing It Follows horror film. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, one of the greatest sequels ever made. And Boyhood, one of the greatest film projects ever endeavored. And the Lego Movie, one of the biggest surprises creatively ever in certainly the past decade, if not in cinema. I mean, you know, we're talking about a movie about blocks. (laughs) And like the way we started from point A and got to where that movie goes is remarkable. It's brilliant. There's a lot of great films and ingenious films and beautifully executed films, and there's, it's a bit of a potpourri as well of films in 2014. And so it is my seventh favorite year. My number six takes us back to 1993, where a lot of fun happened. But let's get through the seriousness first. This is the year of Baji on the Beach. Talk about female experiences. We get to hear about all different female, uh, different women from different generations uh, and different to the family dynamic, all coming together and finding peace and commonality with each other. Wasn't that the debut of one of our favorite directors, Corinda Chada? I believe so. Yeah. Cool. Then there's my life. What a wonderful way to kind of deal with death. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have something, you know, that I will only watch once a decade, but think is an amazing film. And that's Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. And then we get into the fun stuff. So we have Sleepless in Seattle, The Firm. And then the really great stuff, we have Hocus Pocus, which I'm hoping to watch soon. Secret Garden, which I think is grossly underrated. Uh, Groundhog Day, I fucking love that movie. I mean, same day on repeat, it's great. Jurassic Park and Mrs. Doubtfire. So a lot of fun stuff happening. A lot of fun stuff happening there. That is the second year from the 90s that I took into consideration because not only did you have some of those movies that you mentioned, but Tombstone, one of the best westerns ever made, The Fugitive, Gettysburg, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Philadelphia, Fearless, In the Line of Fire, Nightmare Before Christmas, A Perfect World, True Romance, Batman, The Mask of the Phantasm. Woo! Oh yeah, I do love that Batman movie. That's a really, really solid year. Solid choice. Almost made my list. Didn't quite make it. But being halfway through this list, my number six bounces us back another 10 years from my previous pick to the year 2004. Arguably the best year of the 2000s in film because you have Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Shaun of the Dead, Mean Girls, Kill Bill, Spider-Man 2, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Before Sunset, Hero, the Chinese wuxia film we talked about Mm -hmm. a couple episodes back, The Incredibles, Bride and Prejudice, 
the lovely uh, Indian-flavored adaptation of Jane Austen's story, Kung Fu Hustle, another Chinese film we talked about recently, and Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11. My goodness, Shanna, so many movies in one year that were huge i mean there a lot of them are considered and and still reviewed today as among the best ever made of their kind mean girls is one of the best teen movies of that decade uh shaw the dead is one of the greatest zombie movies ever made spider-man 2 is considered one of the best spider-man movies still to this day if not the best so the list goes on so 2004 is my sixth favorite year in cinema. That is a really great choice, love. Did it make it your list? No, it didn't. Oh, fuck. The, the, the early 2000s did not make my list. Oh, interesting. Well, what is your number five? My number five is one of your favorites, 1989. Oh, okay. Tell me why it's a favorite of yours. You know, I look at this list that I have here of my absolute cannot live without films from this year and it's films that i go back to a lot for Mm. different reasons whether it's christmas time feeling nostalgic wanting to get inspired want to reconnect to myself want to have a good time there's maybe two films on here that i don't watch on repeat and those are heathers and do the right thing films that i appreciate uh, and Heather's was like one of your favorites on a recent list. Actually. Yeah, definitely ones that I appreciate existing. Mm-hmm. But films that I go back to a lot is Little Mermaid. Uh, you know, the soundtrack alone is fantastic. Field of Dreams rules. There's no rules here. I mean, like, it's so quotable. We have Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, like, Rick Moranis. I love you. I hope you're okay after being punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. What a... Ugh. That person's an asshole that did that. You know, we have Ghostbusters 2. I'm the Ghostbuster girl. I'm more Ghostbusters than I am Star Wars. You love all the Ghostbusters movies, actually. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. And I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then, of course, we have two films that I go back to at least every year, if not more than once every year, is... Parenthood and Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck is my Christmas movie. <laughs> you know, family coming together, being there for you when you have no one else to turn to, and it all works out. And dealing with teenagers, it's fantastic. So, my fifth favorite year in cinema is my most recent year in this entire list. It is. The year 2018, which was a little surprising to have something so recent make my list, and especially so high. And and this is this is as shameful as I get in the recency bias, but this is the year of Avengers: Infinity War. This is the year of Bohemian Rhapsody, one of the best experiences I've had the past several years in the movie theater. Mission Impossible Fallout, A Star is Born, a surprise for me, Black Panther, A Quiet Place, Crazy Rich Asians, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Minding the Gap, such a great documentary Minding the Gap is, Game Night, Revenge, the French thriller came out in 2018, 
Won't You Be My Neighbor, another solid documentary, as well as Free Solo. That was a great year for documentaries with Minding the Gap, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Free Solo, those three alone. It was a great year with the MCU because we were starting to reach the climax of the first, I don't know if you want to call it a phase or whatever it was, uh, with the Infinity Saga, I should say. With both Black Panther and Infinity War, you had great music movies, not musicals, but music movies with Bohemian Rhapsody, A Star is Born, I don't know. It was just a huge gamut of, of films. And Into the Spider-Verse really, really moved that needle in animation. And it'll be interesting to see if we see the effects of that film in the coming years, too. So 2018, my fifth favorite year in film. My number four has some of my favorite films. I mean, they all do, right? Number four is from 1984. It has my ultimate favorite film, Ghostbusters. It has The Terminator, Footloose. Gremlins, Paris, Texas, Dune, this is Spinal Tap. I mean, this is like the sci-fi year, you know, from... Are you bunching this is Spinal Tap into that sci-fi? No, no, I'm looking at that now, and I wish I had worded it a little differently. But such a great year for sci-fi, and even if they didn't get it 100% right, it's still great that they were trying it out, and then... I don't know when mockumentary started, but Spinal Tap being one of the first, I'm sure, you know, really opened the doors for mockumentaries for the future. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point because you had, oh gosh, what's his name from from Monty Python who went off and did uh, mockumentaries himself and had a whole troupe of comedians with a mighty wind and and so many others. Christopher Guest, thank you. Christopher Guest, he went off and did his own series of mockumentaries. That's a, that's a solid point. Uh, that, that's a good pick, good pick. My fourth favorite year in film is 2010. The year of such giants in cinema as Inception, Toy Story 3, The Social Network, How to Train Your Dragon. This is a great year. Black Swan. This is a really great year. <laughs> True Grit, Winter's Bone, and 127 Hours. But this also, is, This is a Jeff year. <laughs> you also had Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. Mm. You had Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. You had Easy A, Kick-Ass, Tecker and Dale vs. Evil, I think, also came from that year. A monumental year and also a fun year, too. Uh, the Breakout of Emma Stone. That year, the breakout really of, of several people, you know, like uh, like Jesse Eisenberg, who previously was in Zombieland the year before and was taken more seriously with the social network. So many other great things, you know, How to Train Your Dragon, one of the best animated movies of the decade, as well as Toy Story 3, which, god damn, Toy Story 3, man. I, I it's really... like one of the best sequels ever. And the last Toy Story movie, as okay, it turned out. Okay, love <laughs> Anyway, 2010 is a great year in film. It is my fourth favorite year in film. My number three pick really goes to speak about not only the female experience, but the black experience as well, and taking things and really putting them into perspective for us. And this was also the year where we had an all Asian cast movie again, finally. 
since the Joy Luck Club, right? It's 2018, and within that year, we had Crazy Rich Asians, you know, talking about that Asian experience. We had something that was based on a true story to something that was a little more fictionalized to something that was totally fantasy, but still was rooted in the black experience. Black Klansman, Blind Spotting, to Black Panther. We had some tenderness being shown in a time where everybody was fairly hyped up. And that was, you know, the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? We're finally getting to have a peek at what postpartum can look like with Shadi Saran in Tully. Creed 2 was an amazing sequel that seemed so relatable, even if you knew nothing about boxing. A Quiet Place was just one of those films that then opened the door for another another kind of representation with deaf actresses. Uh, Revenge was something that was shown. I, I listed it twice on here. I wonder why. You know, really showing, you know, the female experience uh, that, that men might not be aware of, that, that love women but might not know what we're dealing with. Well, the, the male gaze. The male gaze. Especially. Oh, and I forgot something from, you know, sorry to bother you, really getting bonkers with... Not only being a salesman, but being but being an African American. Well, code switching. You had sorry to bother you and the hate you give. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So really, a fantastic year. Um, eighth grade, looking at puberty for girls. You know, what is that like for us? Um, finally, getting some representation there, and then something truly entertaining. Avengers Infinity War 2018 is my third favorite, and I think it's just a fantastic year. Uh, you make a strong case for what was my fifth favorite year, and and uh, very well done, very well said. My third favorite year in cinema is 1986. Uh, this is purely for favorites. This is purely for <laughs> movies I grew up with. It's it's Highlander, it's Iron Eagle, it's mm-hmm. Big Trouble in Little China, oh, it's, God. it's An American <laughs> Tale, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Stand By Me, Little Shop of Horrors, The Flight of the Navigator, Short Circuits. It's all feel-good movies. The Three you. Amigos, but also Aliens. Mm. You know? Yeah, no, it was an absolute blast of a year, and I know that some of those movies are not like among the greatest films of even the 80s, right? Or even of 1986, but they're fun movies. I I absolutely enjoy still, oh, God, what is it, 20, 34 years later? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, 1986 is absolutely a, a fun year. Even John Carpenter decided to loosen up and have some fun with Big Trouble in Little China more than he had uh, at all. James Cameron made one of the greatest sci-fi action films. Ferris Bueller taught us to take a moment and in, enjoy life for a little while. Otherwise, it's going to pass us all by. And I think in a lot of ways, 1986's movies were about enjoyment. And so I do enjoy it. It is my third favorite year in cinema. 1986. My number two is from 2019. Whoa, really? 
You know, one of my favorite documentaries, One Child Nation, talking about forced abortion, you know, seeing the other side of it. We've got us, super terrifying. All I have to think about is the line where the the son says, you know, there's there's someone in our yard or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. see that picture in my head and I'm like, I can't sleep for the next 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. We have a sort of closure happening with Avengers Endgame and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And then we have uh, really emotional films. We have The Farewell dealing with the loss of a grandmother and feeling a disconnection from the culture you were born into. We have the marriage story looking at both sides of a divorce mm. and all the emotions that happen pre and post that. Mm-hmm. We have Lost Black Man in San Francisco, a strong belief of something that you're so determined to gain. But what does it mean at the end of the day? We have something really funny, Jojo Rabbit. Like, like let's have a spin on, on this storytelling of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And then we have Little Woman and Booksmart really talking about the female experiences, even though those two movies are taking place in different times. We're, we're looking at two sort of extremes of it. And I, I love this here. I love all the emotions I felt. I love how connected to humanity I felt. And, you know, I'm also forgetting to mention we had two amazingly, uh, amazingly put together films, Parasite and Knives Out. Hmm where the stories were pristine. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, no, 2019 was a, a, a great year, no doubt. But I'm going to stay in the 80s okay. <laughs> with my second favorite year in cinema. Shanna, it is your birth year, 1987. It's a good year for me. Because of <laughs> it's a good year for you too. Yeah, well, because and, and it made number two because of quantity, the mm-hmm. sheer quantity of films that I love and enjoy. Let me run through them. I'm sure some of them you mentioned earlier, but there's Princess Bride, mm-hmm. Predator, The Monster Squad, Dirty Dancing, Broadcast News, Mannequin, Secret of My Success, Dragnet. Harry and Henderson's Adventures in Babysitting, Spaceballs, Inner Space, Good Morning Vietnam, The Living Daylights, The Untouchables, Empire of the Sun, and Lethal Weapon. Shanna, I know that this is not necessarily a year of quality when you consider all of those movies. It's a varying degree of quality. But in terms of quantity, movies I grew up with, movies I... I've always enjoyed as a from childhood to now, you know, there is no other year that has so many movies that I have loved my entire life for various reasons. And several of them are genuinely great films. The Princess Bride for crying out loud. I that movie resonates so much that I just bought a new board game based on that movie, you know? Uh, Predator has one of the greatest sci-fi creature designs, I keep saying. Uh, broad, uh, d- well, Dirty Dancing, we, j- we're, we just do it right now. We're doing a poll on, uh, at the time of recording, movie soundtracks. And that is one of the iconic movie soundtracks, mm-hmm. Dirty Dancing. 
The list goes on, obviously. Spaceballs, Mel, arguably Mel Brooks' last great film, so on and so forth. So, uh, 1987, your birth year, much better than my birth year, which didn't even come close to qualifying, even though it had The Empire Strikes Back. It's a much better year, a lot of fun. Love 1987. It's my second favorite year in film. But Shanna? <laughs> <laughs> We went through, for three years, we went through all of time in cinema. What ended up being your absolute favorite year in film? It ended up being a year where not only was I feeling represented, feeling my needs as a woman being met, feeling my dark side of being a woman, being experimented with, but also really surprising films and and some of my favorite sci-fi films. I am not ashamed of mentioning this year. It's 2017. Let's start with the sci-fi. It were, why are you laughing? Because you had 2017, 18, and 19 on well, your list. Well, okay, it's kind of funny because it goes 2018... 2019 2017 right it looks like are they really your top three yeah did i get that right oh my god yeah they are it's because there's this rapid representation happening in experiences and culture so let's start with the sci-fi the sci-fi was is one of my favorite star wars movies i i like the star wars movie better than the first the very first three and it's star wars (gasps) the last jedi Okay, you take your little gaspy face and go put it over there, okay? Lost Jedi is my favorite. And then we have Blade Runner 2049, which I just swoon over every shot, every sound, every note of that movie. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of fun with The Big Sick. I mean, that is one of the funniest romances, but also fairly frightening romances too. And it's just a bonus that it's based on a true story. And, you know, then we have something really shocking and scary that speaks to a particular experience of African-Americans and it's Get Out. Um, You know, Jordan Peele totally changed and has contributed so much to the horror genre guardians 2 and logan and let's talk about coco i mean there's something that i cried through most of the time let's talk about that female experience i was talking about <laughs> so i have never felt as represented as i felt uh, as i ever have in a uh, ladybird That was one of the best films to show between a mother and daughter who is going through puberty, but also going through her last year of high school. Band-Aid, really going through that female experience in marriage, within marriage, uh, showing the dark side of femininity. It will come out, so it's not so much a dark side as it is a warning. Three billboards outside Mississippi, Missouri. And then the fantasy finally bringing us what we have all wanted for a very very long time and that's wonder woman ended by something really quirky raw showing the female experience of college and a couple other things so that is my number one 2017 well i I do agree uh, with you that the last jedi is actually the greatest star wars film it's very daring it is but yes, it, I, I agree with you. Yes, at least since the original film. Anyway, 
what's interesting is 2017 was was the start of the Me Too movement. The very beginning of 2018 was Time's Up, and the media was really starting to reflect in, in kind of serendipitously in sync with these movements. And it makes sense that the representation, the, the things that you're talking about that makes these movies or these years your top three favorite years in, in film, given the arguments that you've given already, that, that, that they would be among your favorites. I think you make really interesting arguments and it's very, very interesting perspective. I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. My favorite year in cinema, however, 1987 was a year of quantity. However, my favorite year is a year of quality, Shanna. Is it from the 80s? And that ended up being 1984. I knew it was going to be 1984. Did you? Yeah, because 1984 was my number four. Well, that was the year of Ghostbusters, as you said, Mm -hmm. Never Ending Story, The Mm -hmm. Karate Kid, Mm -hmm. The Terminator, Mm -hmm. Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. But also, it was the year of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension, Romancing the Stone, the Last Starfighter, and Gremlins. It's a pretty solid yeah. I would say so. Absolutely. A majority of these films are giants. Some still resonate today. You still have Terminator and Karate Kid related uh, media coming out. There's always an attempt in, in behind the scenes in, in the studio to try to revive Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, Nightmare on, on Elm Street was a series. It, it launched a series of horror that lasted uh, for almost twenty years, I think, uh, and even had a failed remake. But still, there was resonance there. It's it, and in Footloose, you know, that's a movie that we celebrated. We celebrated it as one of our favorite movies of 1984. We celebrated it as one of our favorite soundtracks jointly. It, it's a story that comes up a lot. 1984 is definitely a year of quality over quantity, and I could not leave it at the number two spot. I had to bump it up <laughs> as my favorite year in film. It's a really great choice. But first, were there any other years that just got bumped off by some of your picks that may have been on the list at first or you were sure were going to be on the list? Yeah, it looks like 2014 got knocked off. That's the year of Wild, Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Men. You kind of mentioned that. Uh, 2012 didn't make it. Avengers, Looper, Cabin in the Woods, Django Unchained, Searching for Sugar Man, 21 Jump Street, Life of Pi, Moonrise Kingdom, Two Days in New York. Uh, 1999 was Toy Story, Dogma, Tarzan, Iron Giant, Magnolia, South Park, movie, Sixth Sense, Matrix, Double Jeopardy. Uh, And then it looks like... I considered 1944 and 1959, 44 for Arsenic and Old Lace with three Caballeros, 59 for North by Northwest and Some Like It Hot and Sleeping Beauty. But what, which ones didn't make it for you? Well, the movie, the, the year that barely got bumped off. Yeah, I mean years, yeah. Was 1975. 
What's there? That was the year of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, Money mm-hmm. Python and the Holy Grail, and Jaws, as well as Dog Day Afternoon, Akira Kurosawa's Derzu Ozawa, and Three Days of the Condor, one of my favorite discoveries of our journey. I considered briefly 1952, which is the year of Limelight, Akiru, and Seen in the Rain. 1995 was the only other 90s year that I took into consideration, aside from the two that you listed. That was the year of Seven, Ghost in the Shell, Toy Story, GoldenEye, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Clueless, Before Sunrise, Apollo 13, The American President, Braveheart, and also guilty pleasures like Mortal Kombat, Bad Boys, and Desperado. Aside from that, it was really 2011 and 2009 that also considered, but I figured I also had plenty from those two decades in my list as well. Uh, if you don't remember, 2011 was the year of Hugo, Hannah, X-Men First Class, Fast Five, uh, uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Kung Fu Panda 2, arguably the best of the trilogy, Bernie, Bridesmaids, A Separation by Asghar Farhadi. Mm-hmm. Really great film. Mm-hmm. Friends with Benefits as well. And, and 2009 was the year of, of course, Watchmen and 500 Days of Summer and Moon and Glorious Bastards. Eh? Up in the Air, Zombieland, In the Loop, which you alluded to before, and uh, District 9 and I Love You, Man. So those were all solid years, but really 1975 was the strongest contender that just got knocked off the list. But, dear listener, I'm curious, which of these years is your favorite year in cinema or among your favorite years in cinema? Is there another year that you really love that neither of us mentioned that is a favorite of yours that deserves some recognition? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That's going to about do it for us with this episode. Shanna, why don't you let people know where they can find you online? I just realized that 1975 also was going to possibly reach my list. Oh. That's funny. Uh, you can find me politely at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography on Instagram. Or if you want to go check out my flick chart, which might get boosted, seeing as how we're working on favorite films of our entire lives. That's going to be at Spellbinding A, not A, just <laughs> one A. So the GibsonReview.com. That's the main source for everything Gibson Review related and the movie lovers related. Check out, I think, at time around the time that you're, this is going to be hitting your ears, there should be a new article that is kind of Halloween-related that is going through the original Universal Monster movies. Not necessarily all their sequels, but the original movies and reviewing them and ranking them. Keep an eye out for that feature. You will see that feature also advertised on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Gibson Review. And on Instagram, the Gibson 99 on Instagram, I do polls, bracket polls, asking people what their favorite movies are. Let's see here. More recently, we have had a couple results of these polls. Uh, Let's see. For me to update you on, we had your favorite director of all time was Alfred Hitchcock. And your favorite movie of 2014 ended up being Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. 
At the time of recording, we are in the middle of a poll for your favorite movie soundtracks. That is probably going to be over by the time this hits your ears. So go to Instagram, the Gibson 99 to see the results of that. I think you'll probably have a poll asking you what your favorite universal monster movie is in celebration of Halloween. Feel free to participate in that. Otherwise, find me on the flick chart at the Gibson 99. Next episode, Shanna. I, I'm at a point now, you know, you're talking about my whited out schedule and all these pages I've had to rewrite and stuff. I am at a point where I've tossed my cookies and I'm just like, <laughs> I am just going episode by episode now. It's and probably the way you should roll in 2020. Apparently. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we're going to review for our main event, Zoe Lister-Jones latest whoop, whoop. movie. The Craft, what's it called? It's called The Craft Legacy. So Zoe Lister-Jones, we have been huge fans of. She directed Band-Aid. She's also in the TV show Life in Pieces. So she's directing this film that will co-star Michelle Monaghan and David Duchovny, as well as a young cast of characters I'm not familiar with. It looks like we'll probably review that. That comes out on the 28th of October. And a little up in the air of what film faves we'll be focusing on. So keep a watch on Instagram for announcement of what that list will be focusing on. Otherwise, look for the episode November 10th, Tuesday. In the meantime... Keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.